You're listening to Interview Time. On January 1st, 2007, Bob Lyron arrived in Manila on what was supposed to be a month-long vacation to visit some friends. He ended up staying in Asia for the next 13 years, living and working for extended periods of time in the Philippines, Thailand, and most recently Japan. In March of 2020, as the COVID-19 pandemic swept across the world, he was forced to return to his hometown in Ohio. But instead of spending the lockdown isolated and indoors, Lyron decided to take an open-ended solo motorcycle trip across the United States, documenting his journey in a motovlog called No Direction Home. In this episode, Lyron and I discuss his adventures traveling and living as an expatriate in Asia, how engaging with and assimilating into foreign cultures has enriched his experiences living abroad, and how going out on the road and into the unknown is helping him find his way back home. Bob Lyron, welcome to Interview Time. Thanks for having me, man. Congratulations on launching your podcast. Thank you. You have been producing a, a vlog. Correct. Um, and I think you, well, you just told me it's up to 17 episodes. Um, and you're, you're driving across the country on, on a motorcycle. It's a, I think you called it a moto vlog. Correct. And you've titled it No Direction Home. And I'm just curious uh, why you decided to call it that. That's a great question to start with because I don't know the answer. Right. I'm actually hoping that I'm going to figure that out over the course of this podcast. Right. Um, there's the obvious connection to Bob Dylan and Martin Scorsese, the, the wonderful uh, documentary, which yeah. I love both those guys and I love that film. But um, the words No Direction Home have a deeper meaning to me somewhere. Yeah. And I'm actually hoping to figure it out today. So yeah. that, that's, that's what we're tasked with today. I knew you back... Uh, probably from 2003 to Correct. about 2007 we were friends here in Los Angeles. Right. And uh you left the United States in 2007. I did. I I left on I left on New Year's Day, uh January 1, 2007. And do you think at the time that you moved away in 2007 were you looking for adventure? I didn't I didn't start by saying I need to go on an adventure or there wasn't right. anything wrong with, I didn't feel like there was anything wrong with my life that I needed to do something drastic to try to change. Um, so yeah, I didn't feel like, well, I need to do this. I'm going on an adventure. I kind of just felt like I was doing exactly what I would, I should be doing. Right. Um, I remember back in Los Angeles when I left Los Angeles at the end of 2006, seems like a lifetime ago, but there was certainly a level of like influx. My life was a little bit in flux and that I didn't have a lot of the uh, common things that might hold a person down, like a mortgage or a family or a career that I didn't want to leave. So the opportunity to go was certainly apparent to me, but it wasn't like a sense of like, I need to get out. I need to get away. But now looking back on it, I do think that I was seeking out a feeling or an idea from myself that I wanted, but I, I wasn't aware of it at the time. What was the plan at the time? Uh, I was on the run from Johnny Law. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, um, there, there wasn't, it was not a front loaded plan. So right. um, initially when I left the US, I went to the Philippines, I went to Asia, and I went there on invitation from some friends who had started a call center in the Philippines. Right. And they invited me to come hang out. And initially, I was only going to go for a month. And then one month turned into three months. 
which turned into six months. And then I was like, well, I'll just stay for a year. And then I haven't been back in like 13 years. I mean, I've been back periodically to visit, sure, but I haven't been back in 13 years. So when I left, it wasn't a plan to stay. I just, once I got abroad, I stayed. What do you think kept you over there? I remember, I mean, like I said, it wasn't a front loaded plan. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going for a job or I fell in love and I'm going to stay in with, <laughs> with a partner or there's a lot of reasons that people move to different places. For me, the only thing I remember or one thing that I remember is that when I got off the plane in Manila, I mean, the Philippines is a beautiful country. The people are wonderful, but it's also a developing country. And yeah. so there's a little bit of chaos that comes with that. And you get off the plane in Manila and you're just hit with this wave of heat yeah. and, you know, noise and urban environment. And I think for a lot of people, when they travel abroad for the first time or when they spend time abroad, it can be a little intimidating, which, you know, we can get into more of that later. But I just remember distinctly that I just felt totally at ease. I felt totally relaxed. There was no learning, uh, learning curve. There was no like adjustment period. Like I got picked up at the airport. We went to dinner and I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm totally cool with this. Like, this is great. And certainly I was my eyes were like pies. I mean, I was looking around at all the stuff, but I wasn't, I wasn't tense. And so one year when I, I recognized that and I thought as time went on, why would I leave this place that I feel so comfortable and good to be, to be at? So there was almost a sensation of like, I'm just instantly a sensation. I'm in the right place. I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Exactly. I mean, I wouldn't, I hesitate to use that word home, Right. But there was certainly, because there is no direction home, apparently. Right. But there, there was just a feeling of just like very relaxed, very at ease and happy. Right. Almost immediately. I just took, it, took to it almost like a fish to water, being right. an expat living abroad. What is it about Asia that has captured your imagination or, or pulled you through it? Right. That's, that's also um, a good question. I think that each country has a different um, element of, culture that affects me as an expat and living abroad. So my experiences in China or Hong Kong are going to be different than my experiences in Thailand. But for me, the, the, there's a simplicity and a sort of a grounded, a groundedness in their moral and ethical approach to life. There's also a very relaxed attitude about being in Asia. Um, it's sort of a mix between respectfulness and ease. Each, each country has a different, brings something different to the table, whether it's China sure. or Vietnam or Thailand. I, I don't know that I could put my finger on exactly why, except to go back to my previous answer, which is that when I was there, I just felt totally at ease. Yeah. Not that I was uncomfortable or antsy or not happy when I was living in America, but there was, there was certainly like a level of excitement that I maintain up until today. Like every day I'm aware even though I try really hard to assimilate myself into the local culture, I'm aware that I'm a foreigner living here. So right. there's almost just like a built-in level of excitement. Of right. Like, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not from here. <laughs> and so I've lived it. And, and so I think it's that excitement paired with just a feeling of feeling, a feeling of being at ease and happy right. to be there, which has sort of carried me through 13 years of living abroad. Is there one place in particular that you would consider to have been particularly formative? Each place um, certainly added, brought its own elements that 
helped shape me and shape my time in Asia. I think that my last stage, which was in Japan, had a profound impact on me. Living in Japan and being around that culture for four or five years certainly helped shape who I am. Um, I will say that probably when I was in the Philippines, I remember at my end of the time in the Philippines, sort of thinking and figuring out that like I'm much more patient than I used to be. Hmm. And I think that that's also just a byproduct of being around Asian culture, which is not as extroverted as American culture. And so you have to learn to be a little bit more subdued, a little bit more patient. So maybe you can kind of walk us through a little bit of what you were up to in the Philippines. Sure. I was in the Philippines for about five or six years. And at the time I was pursuing uh, media work, film and media production. I was working as a producer and uh, independently just kind of creating my own environment. And I got really fortunate in that I got hooked up with a lot of musicians that live in the Philippines. And these are wonderful musicians. Philippines is actually like, I consider the Philippines with the UK and the US to be one of the best places for music. Right. Not to dive into a history lesson, but you know, the Philippines and the US has a really have really strong ties because of our military background. And so American culture is very evident in the Philippines. That everyone in the Philippines speaks English. They watch the same TV shows. They listen to the same music as opposed to other countries in Southeast Asia that have very little American influence on their culture. The Philippines has a big American influence on their culture. And so for me to go there and do that kind of work was, was very easy. Um, right. Just because we had like a common language of media and culture and history. Do you think there was something about being a foreigner that made you kind of like give you a little bit of a leg up or something like you certainly know, different. Were you able to convince yeah. people to, to work with you more or different or, well, I think that, you know, it's, it's exciting for if you're working the arts or you work in media and there's a different point of view available to you, you might want to take advantage of that. Obviously mm -hmm. there are sometimes they didn't want to work with me. Sure. Um, I remember that at the time I was working with some really well-known and famous musicians in the Philippines and they had, been doing music and media for so long that they had sort of a, of, of a global perspective because they traveled and played music all over the world. So for them, the idea of like, it was exciting for them, I think, to work with someone not from their country, right. just to offer a different perspective. Another thing I did was I hosted a radio show on like FM radio. And so it was called uh, Lost in Translation. <laughs> and it, I, had a, I had a friend, another American guy that I was doing it with, and we would do a two hour radio show every Saturday night. And they gave us complete freedom to play whatever music we wanted. So this would have been right up your alley. Like, you know, we, yeah. my friend and I, we would build these amazing playlists of songs and we would take movie sound bites from movies and, and put them in the show. And as long as we didn't use any bad language, we had basically a carte blanche to do whatever we wanted. And that was a pretty cool experience to like be on the radio. And every Saturday night from nine to 11, people were tuning into 97.1 to listen to <laughs> Lost in Translation. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. Were you guys, did you guys have a little bit of a following with that? We absolutely was... did. I mean, like at the time we, we had like, you know, we had all the, the necessary social media platform. We had a Facebook page and an Instagram and we used to. And this know, was run out of Manila? It was. It was run out of Manila FM radio. And um, we used to, uh, yeah, we used to have, we, we would encourage, like this is like, you know, it seems like so long ago, but we would encourage people to like message us live while we were on the radio <laughs> and like chat with people. And, yeah. Um, we had a segment called, uh ghost dj where we would ask a friend to pick a song to give us no explanation just pick any song you want and we'll play that song and 
fans would try to guess who was who was the ghost DJ, like who was the based on the song and stuff. Anyway, it was it was a, it was another great experience and just something that happened. I wasn't pursuing it. I'm not a radio guy, right? But you know, I just met these people and one thing led to another. And then all of a sudden, it was like, why don't, why don't wouldn't it be cool if two foreigners expats were doing a radio show in Manila? It was fun. What so what took you from the Philippines? I think it was to Thailand next. Correct. How did that sort of chapter end i guess and yeah then sure you went into so that. um a lot of it was uh an opportunities opportunities that came up so when i moved to the philippines i was already traveling to thailand regularly it's right. easy to go from the philippines to thailand you know just flying over there they're, and, they're relatively and this close. was on business or yeah i mean well i would go for no i was traveling to thailand just just for fun like a couple times a year and then if a business opportunity or, or an opportunity to travel with someone that was doing work there would come i would go but the, the opportunity to go to Thailand, to go to Bangkok specifically, came from an offer. There was an international school there that was interested in starting a media program for their students. So this was like a private international school in Bangkok, and they decided they wanted to start a media program, but they didn't have anybody to do it. And I had a friend that worked there. This guy said, hey, I know this guy in the Philippines that works in media, and he's a producer, and he might be willing to do it. So on my next trip over to Bangkok, I met with the school and they explained what they wanted to do. And it sounded like a fun challenge and a fun adventure. So I decided to do it. So what were they asking you to do specifically? Set up a multimedia film production type program for the students at this international school. So this would be like a private school where expat kids or kids that are, um, maybe have one foreign parent, but live in Thailand, want to go to school. And so they wanted a media program because their students were now, this was, this was like circa 2012. Right. So there was a lot of interest from kids that were, that were in high school to start learning about media and they wanted to start a program. Yeah. And I think like things like social media and everything exactly. are going into full swing. Exactly. And, They're really starting to jump off. Yeah. Everyone's starting to get an iPhone and have a phone and using social media. So they wanted a program where they could kind of channel that. So I actually, was totally in charge of developing the curriculum, how the program's going to work, what do we need to buy, what do the kids need to study, how is this going to fit into their social studies or their math, or their English classes, like what kind of classes can they attend? So I spent four years building that program at the school. You were ready for the next chapter, I suppose. And... I, I was ready for a new challenge. Um, and the idea of moving to Bangkok, which is a place I had visited many times, I was very excited about it. I do remember that there was, we talked earlier about formative experiences, and I think that the Philippines is a, uh, it's like a, Manila is like a first world city surrounded by a developing country. And I'd spoken earlier about like becoming more patient. And certainly one of the experiences was like when you're living in a place like that, you have to learn to be a little bit more relaxed because things don't work exactly the same way as they do here. And I remember at the end of my time in the Philippines, even though I loved it, I was acutely aware of like, it's difficult to live here as a foreigner. And I did it for five years, but I was aware of the difficulties I was having and some, sometimes the stress of like, just trying to manage my life in a place that I'm not from. And so Bangkok was a little bit more foreigner friendly. They had a little bit more experience just because of a longer generation of tourists and foreign influence. So and I, like I said, visited there many times. So the idea of going there was almost like, oh, it might be a slightly easier for me to live there on a day-to-day -day basis. When you were in Thailand and, and you were in Bangkok and you were setting up this school, who, 
who were you hanging around with? I mean, who were your friends? It's interesting to me because when I was in the Philippines, all of my friends were locals. And I, again, I think that's because of the influence of like Western culture on the Philippines. So like when I would meet someone like a musician, for example, that was the same age as me, we might've read the same books growing up and watched the same TV shows. And so there's that cultural connection. Connection. You guys have a, yeah. And also the language. So like he, he speaks English um, very well, like fluently. And so all of my friends when I was in the Philippines were Filipinos. I hung out with very few expats. And then, as I said, when I moved to Bangkok, it was almost like, in terms of infrastructure and quality of life, maybe a step up. But my social circle was almost like a step down because Thailand has a more insulated culture. And ironically, Japan is even more insulated. So, <laughs> And there is, I was thinking just now, there's been like, this kind of progression exactly, as you've gone farther east. Exactly. Like, as, as I've gotten more... De into developed nations, my interaction with people has got on a personal level has gotten less and less. Um, but in Thailand, Thai culture is very strong. They're very proud. Uh, it's a very vibrant and individual culture. And so I didn't have as many Thai friends as I did when I was in the Philippines. However, the trade-off was, was that I got to be a part of a stronger cultural identity. So it was almost like a, it, it was a trade-off. So when I was in Thailand, I actually hung out with more expats. They have way more expats in Thailand. In fact, I think more foreigners live in Bangkok than any other city in Southeast Asia. So there's a, there's a large expat presence in Bangkok. So I knew a lot of, I knew a lot of expats. And was there kind of a, a recognition among your, cause you said your friends with more with more so with the expatriates, did it have its own sense of community? I, I guess you would say, and what would be the characteristics of that community? Do you sure. Think? So like all things, it changes and it changed a lot while I was there. There was a, the Asian financial crisis, which I believe was 2008, if, right. I'm, if I'm not, not mistaken. Um, after the Asian financial, after Southeast Asia recovered from that crisis, there was a boom of growth in Asia and also in tourism. And I remember, so the first time I went to Thailand was 2007. And then I moved there in 2012. The experiences that I had in 2007 were completely different than the experiences I had in 2012. Both like on a street level of like buildings are now gone, replaced by new apartment buildings, you know, um, and, and not to be a person that's like aches for the old days, but yeah. it had just like a lot more, when I was there in 2007, you felt like a foreigner living in a foreign right. country. Whereas now there's so much growth and so much development that it's almost becoming more, you know, with growth and development, you think you're just becoming more neutral. You know? And yes, and kind of globalized. Exactly. I mean, like, so you have this authentic culture that was there, mm -hmm. and then all this foreign money is now correct. Probably I mean, and, coming and, and in. like on a on just like on a, on a street level, like you know, Thailand's famous for its street food. Okay, mm. and so when I when I first used to go to Thailand, like you could you could go eat dinner for for a dollar, like the most beautiful Thai, you know, pad Thai, you know, noodles, whatever, for for a dollar, and it was being prepared on the street by a Thai person with a push cart, and it was delicious, yeah. and it was a dollar. And there were streets of these people. That's how they made their living. Well, they're, they're now gone because they built an apartment complex. You know, a bunch of foreign investors came in or, or the Thai government or Thai, Thai businessmen built a luxury condo there. 
which is great because it's a, it, the city's developing, it's growing, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. And obviously, as a guest there, it's just it's not for me to comment on that. Like this is it's their country, it's their culture. Sure. And if this is the way that's going to develop. That's fine. Also, they may think that you're participating. <laughs> exactly, you're part of the problem. And so, um, but but to to get back to what you said, the, Thailand's called the land of smiles, and they're very friendly and very relaxed. But I always respected their culture. I mean, I still do. Sure. But so that that insulation that we were talking about was never a problem for me. In fact, I think one of the reasons I was able to survive and be happy for so long was that I was very aware of trying to assimilate myself into the culture of where I was. I was not just trying to be a loud, happy, aggressive American guy wherever I was. And to get back to something you said before, one of the differences between when I got there in 2007 or 2012 was that if you wanted to live in the Philippines like, or, or Thailand, like you didn't have a choice. You have to assimilate to their culture. Okay. There's no, like you have, yeah. you, you don't have a choice. You have to eat Thai food. You have to speak the language. Otherwise, how are you going to get anything done in the Philippines? Like, even though they had that Western influence on their culture, it's still like, I have to eat their food. So I need to learn how to order it and learn how to like it. And when I got there, the, the only guys, the only expats or the men and women that were around, they, ha- they didn't have a choice. They had to make that decision. But as things have developed, it's a lot easier to be there now. So you right. can essentially go there. You've got 4G. You've got a bunch right. of restaurants. You've got a luxury apartment. I mean, like when I first moved there, I was living in Thai neighborhoods. I mean, my neighbors were Thai. It's just right. Thai people. You know, and, they, and to them, it was this novelty that this white guy was living on their street. You know what I mean? They yeah. loved it. They thought it was crazy. Yeah. You know, little kids like poking their head out of the door and like laughing at me and wanting to come up and look at my skin and, you know, like my eyes or whatever. And so in order to not just thrive, but just in order to exist, you have to be willing to assimilate yourself into the culture. And I was very aware of that going back to, like I said, the first time I got off the airplane, I was like, okay. And I was very aware of the culture around me. And I identified that as like, I need to, I need to become a part of this if I'm going to stay here. Right. And I think I was successful, which is why I was able to stay for 13 years. When you went in 2007, you said you could get, there were streets full of street food vendors. You could buy noodles off the street. And, but now when you went back in 2012, that had kind of disappeared. Slowly. Slowly. From 2012 to 2020. And what is that force? Is that that kind of globalized economy i know what you're talking about if i were to characterize it i would call it like the dubai syndrome like it's like the world is turning into the duty-free shop at the airport there's something authentic that's being swept away and then something kind of globalized that and commodified that's like coming in and i'm wondering if you've experienced that feeling you, you may not but it seems like you're talking about that right now you you, you said it perfectly there's a globalization that's happening and and like I said, like, what, what do I want? Or do I don't want that? I don't want the, I don't want Thailand to develop and for people to make more money and for their quality of life to improve. Of course I do. I think that it's a byproduct of you do lose a little bit of your culture when you become more, when you become bigger and more global and there's more of an influx of foreign investment or foreign culture that's coming into your country. And it's a challenge for these countries to try to maintain it. And my, I felt like the only thing I could do was to try to embrace their culture and practice it 
so I could just do my little part of helping to maintain what I saw and what I liked about the place, learning to speak a little bit of the language, learning about their local customs, going to the temple on their holidays, things like that, and, and, and participating as a way of trying to help preserve it because I enjoyed it so much. This is why I was there, because I loved the culture. There, there was a moment, there was a thing that I saw happening, and it was tied directly to um, the generation behind us, you and I, and the advancement of social media. And it, we call them digital nomads mm -hmm. in Asia. And what these are are people that, this is all pre-COVID, of course. Sure. People that work on their work from their computer, whether they're a graphic designer or they build websites or they work in some sort of social media capacity. And what those people were doing was living in Silicon Valley or living in San Francisco or living in New York and they were doing these jobs. And maybe they would go to the office or maybe they wouldn't. And what I distinctly remember around 2012 was an uptick in young foreigners arriving not because they wanted to live in Thailand, because they just, they, they wanted, it was easier for them to mm. live in Thailand. It was cheaper. Okay. Mm. So if you're living in San Francisco and you work as a graphic designer, well, you're getting paid a lot to do that job because you're in the American economy, mm. but your rent is high. Your costs of living are very high. You have to have a car, you have to have car insurance, all these things. And then what happened was almost like a couple, a couple people came over and said, wait a second. I can live here on a thousand to two thousand dollars a month mm -hmm. and have a, a great apartment. I can eat this delicious food that costs a dollar. Okay. <laughs> like beer and to go out, the drinks are not expensive. Okay. Healthcare is relatively good. Uh, everything was a fraction of the cost. Why don't I just, and the, I have these world-class beaches and, and vacation destinations at my fingertips. And why don't I just do my job here? And so right. what I saw, I distinctly remember like starting to meet, like I said before, if you were living in Thailand, you had to want to be there because it's not easy to live in a developing country in a place that you don't know, you don't speak the language. And so you have to make the effort. It's just like um, someone from Southeast Asia moving to America. You're going to have to learn the language. You're going to have to learn how we do things here. How, how, do you, how do you do this? How do you go to the grocery store? How do we, how do you drive a car in America? You have to learn all those things. Well, Typically, people were coming to America because it was a, a land of opportunity to improve their quality of life. And this was almost like a flip. They were going to a developing country like Vietnam or Cambodia or Laos or Thailand because it was easier to live there and they could do, they could do their job from remotely. And so I distinctly remember around 2012 starting to meet more young foreigners like, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, oh, I'm a graphic designer. I work for a firm in San Francisco. I'm like... And they're there because it's easier, it's more fun, and just generally speaking, a better quality of life for them to be there. So now what you have is just a, from, from Vietnam to Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, a huge expat population of young people that are working remotely. And do you... Um, and I don't like them. <laughs> okay, I was just going to ask you: Were these your friends, or these? Well, no, were they, your... they weren't. And, and it's were not, you kind it's... of friends? Because you said you were friends more with the expats. You had a little group of expatriate I friends. I did. Now, I did. Is that, that they, they were more, more of related. the old school? They idea, were the right? old school guys. Yeah, they were the old school guys. Who, and, can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, sure. So, well, let me let me address. It's not that I don't like these sure. these, these young people, but what my my issue was that I'm like, 
you didn't have to go through the struggle of assimilating yourself to the culture in order to survive. Yes. I'm better off for that because I'm now more tied to this place and I have, I'm more invested. I wanted to be as Filipino as I could be. Right. I wanted to be as Thai as I could be. I wanted to be as Japanese as I could be. And I think it comes from a place of respect. Yeah. I, I respect your culture. You know, when, 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 people move to America, we expect them to become like Americans. You know, that's what we want. We yeah. want you to be like an American. And so the same is true on the, on, the, on the other way around. From Thailand, you even went a step deeper. Now, now you've gone into, um, into Japan. And Japan, this is a famously difficult culture to kind of assimilate into as a foreigner. Um, Almost impossible. Right. Right. You're never going to be accepted. You're never going to be looked at as like an equal. Right. I mean, and, and I don't mean you're going to be looked down upon. Certainly mm -hmm. there are, are ways that they can, but they don't. So living, living and visiting so many other places in Asia for so many years was really primer for like the big leaks going to Japan where right. it's like everything has a meaning. Like it's not America. It's not big. It's not showy. It's all very subtle and right below the surface. And you have to be careful exactly what word you use and how much you bow and how fat, you know, like everything has, everything has like meaning. And that's part of, you know, what we love about Japan is that I didn't understand what I relearned what respect and honor, those stereotypical things that we know about Japan and their history, they're all true. Right. And there's a, a level of respect, accountability and honor that's deeply ingrained into their culture. And it percolates all the way down to the, to, to the basic level of how they interact with strangers on a train, you know, on the subway or in a restaurant or, you know, ordering a cup of coffee at Starbucks is done differently than, than it would be done here. The subtle art of being Japanese is a very real thing. And it's taught to children from birth. When I've talked about this to friends, trying to explain it to them, I said, it's like our inherent freedom it's a comparable to, to an american's inherent freedom mm -hmm. like we are the freest country in the world like you and i our freedom is something that we were just in, is instilled in us from birth in japan the art of being japanese is something that's instilled in them from birth and that it has many facets of honor respect how you behave but they know that their ability to be the best version of japanese people is the most important thing because their culture is so strong because their culture is so self-contained that they're all doing their part individually and as a whole to preserve that. And it has a lot to do with honor. It's a very important word in Japan. It's like, it's something we kind of toss out now. Too. We do. It's we, we, we have lost a sense of our honor. Um, and there's, well, at least there's this sort of like, maybe, you can explain this a little bit. There seems to be a slight difference in the definition maybe of honor. What would you consider the Japanese definition? Exactly. From your understanding of sure. what honor is. Just to take one that people might, that they might know. It's like Japanese people call each other by their last name. They don't, they don't call, you wouldn't call me Bob. You know, you would say Lyran-san, right? Mm -hmm. what, why is that? Why do they call each other by their last name, not their first name? Well, it's because your name is, it represents you and your clan. And that's how we identify this group.
group of people, right? So you're, I'm the liar. I'm from the Lyran clan. If I'm just Bob, there's a lot of Bobs out there, but there's only a few of my clan. And so I know that I have to preserve and protect my name because it's how people identify me and judge me and view me. And so that's just like one little element to it of like, and you're maybe part of something larger than yourself. Exactly. The, Japan's famous as a we before me culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also comes from wanting to protect something that they care very much about. Whereas in America, it's like more individualistic. It's more about going on your own and you can do everything on your own and getting people out of your way to achieve your goal. I mean, it's just, I think our culture is just a little bit more about me before we. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, it's interesting, probably the United States is as far as you can get West in Western culture in a way. And Japan, I feel like was the farthest East. I agree. Like I was saying, the stages of my, my time was like Philippines to Thailand to Japan. Those were like the three big stops. And it was funny because the Philippines is the most assimilated to Western culture. So everyone speaks English. It was a great first country to go to because mm -hmm. like everyone speaks the same language <laughs> I do. Like I said, I'm really glad I went to Japan or lived in Japan last because it was the farthest away from America. And I had plenty of practice living abroad. Right. Whereas if I had gone to Japan first, I might've, it might not have gone as well. Um, and back to what you, something you said before, like I never feel like, I'm being looked down upon because I'm a mm -hmm. foreigner. However, they're acutely aware of their culture and my culture. And that's part of my responsibility of living abroad is to try to respect that. So I was trying to be as Japanese as I could out of respect for their culture because I want them at least to, to see it. So what was your life in Japan um, most recently? What what is your what was your life like? I moved I moved to Japan and 2016 and um it was the most structured life that i had had living abroad you know versus other mm -hmm. places that i had lived again just because it's a more developed country um there's more infrastructure so i would say that even though i was living in the most foreign place my day my day-to-day -day existence most closely resembled what my life would be like in the u.s for your average person whereas other places i'd lived prior to that, it, it, it was completely different. There was, when I was in Japan towards the end, I left when COVID, when COVID happened, yeah. um, which I'm sure we can get into. Yeah. But I remember that I was actually starting to feel a struggle or an internal struggle about my existence in Japan because it had become so structured. Right. Because I was, I was, I remember there were times towards the end of Japan, I was thinking, well, Essentially, I'm just living the same way I would be living if I had been been in the U.S. Right. Whereas when I had been in Thailand or some of these other countries, it was way more like an adventure of a life. And I remember starting to feel a little bit like, oh, maybe it's time for me to make a move back to a place where I could recapture that adventurous sort of spirit. Because the more developed the country you live in, the easier it is to live there. The train mm -hmm. works better. The food is you know, it's easier to get, the internet's better, all those things that we take for granted. I, I was starting to take those things for granted too. Mm -hmm. And there was a little voice inside my head that's like, you kind of strayed away from what you were doing before. Is this what you want? And is that is that little voice in your head? I mean, is that who you are? Is, are, are you someone, Bob, that like can't... I think since I've known you, like, yeah, you don't necessarily... 
you haven't wanted that traditional life. I certainly think you can make decisions. Sometimes people make those decisions without knowing why mm-hmm. they do it. I just got married because everyone was getting married, you know, mm-hmm. and I had kids. Um, I know that I specifically didn't make decisions that I knew would impact my life. For The easiest ones are like getting married and starting a family is a great way to ground you in a certain reality, a uh, sense of responsibility. And I knew I was aware of the fact that I had not done those things. And because I hadn't done those things, I had been afforded a completely different path of life that I was enjoying. And so I was, I was acutely aware of that. And you, did you have a feeling that maybe that was starting to, to slip away? It was. I mean, I think just the, the, the structure of my life in Japan at the time was just, it was starting to become more grounded. I mean, at some point I could have been like, I could be married right now. I could have a family right now. And it wasn't that I, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't have a negative reaction to that idea. I'd love to have a family one day. Um, but it was just there. I knew that there was something missing. And so ironically after COVID hit, and then I moved back to America and the things I told you about that I've been up to might've been in a direct response to that experience in Japan. How did the realization come about that? Like I have to leave Japan. Sure. So it's directly tied to COVID. Um, we were ahead of the curve in Asia on COVID just because of our proximity to China. So I remember in February, I actually traveled to Canada to see some family and have a a little winter vacation. And in early, like first week of February, I went to the airport in Japan and it was like a ghost town. There was no one there. There was hardly anyone on my flight. Um, And then I went to Canada to see some of my family And they were way behind in terms of like the COVID curve than I was. And then after I returned to Japan and went back to work, um, the big moment was COVID start when COVID broke in the U S things got serious, more serious all over the world. I mean, we'd already had a problem in with COVID in Spain and other parts of Europe, but when it broke in the U S you know, it just, it became bigger. And I remember, uh, specifically when the U S government, the state department issued a statement, which said, if you're an expatriate living abroad, there is a possibility that it might be difficult for you to return to the U S because flights get canceled, airports get shut down, etc. So we're giving you, we're putting you on notice essentially, like anytime after the next two weeks, we could, it could be more difficult. So if you want to return to the U S now might be a good time because you could get stuck wherever you are. Um, when that happened, I was like, okay. Yeah. And so I went to my employer and I spoke to, I spoke to him with the Japanese company that I was working for. And I was very fortunate that they were very supportive of me and, you know, working with them. So they said, why don't you return to the U S and just continue to work remotely, which I did. And that all happened within about seven days, seven days, seven days. So, I remember the day that I read the article from the State Department. They, you know, it was an official statement from the State Department. That day, I went in and spoke to my boss, and I was on a plane seven days later, returning to the U.S. Wow! With a small luggage, I left a bunch of my stuff in Japan. Like, you know, I had all these belongings that you just acquire from living in a place for four or five years. I left all that stuff there, packed a bag, took my computer, and I, I flew back to the U.S. And the experience of flying back to the U.S. So this would have been like March. The experience of flying back to the U.S. was was very interesting. Again, it was kind of like uh, that 
I am legend contagion film kind right. of vibe where I remember I landed in the airport in Minneapolis and it was just deserted. There was no one around. Right. We went through security. We did, you know, they took our temperature and then I was just like sitting in an empty airport. There was, everything was closed. And so, um, and then I just made my way back to Ohio where I'm from. Now I will admit that there was a certain level, like even that seven day turnaround to return to America rekindled a bit of that adventurous kind of, you know, and of course the context was, was terrible because we were in the middle, in the beginning of this global pandemic, but there, I was like, Oh, okay, this is, I'm back into like, you know, this is what people that aren't grounded in responsibility like me with a family or a job that you don't have flexibility. They don't get to do this. So I'm just like picking everything up and heading back to America. Um, under very fortunate circumstances, like I said, I, I was able to keep my job and they were supporting me. But I remember when I got back to America, it was almost like a little bit of reverse culture shock, yeah. you know, coming back to a place that I hadn't lived for 13 years. Um, I remember specifically, like I said, in Asia, we were way ahead of the curve in, in terms of COVID because of our proximity to China, but also Japanese people and other Asian countries, they wear masks all the time anyway. Before COVID, we, you would wear a mask. It's not uncommon to see many people on the subway or on the street wearing a mask. And I remember right at the beginning of COVID in America, there was a lot of confusion and conflicting reports about whether we should be wearing masks. And I came from Japan and I remember the first time I went to the grocery store, I was wearing a mask and people in the grocery store were like, look at this weird guy wearing a mask. Why is he wearing a mask? You know, now of course everything's changed, but it was kind of funny. It was like when I, when you move to Southeast Asia and you assimilate yourself into a culture and you live on a dead end street surrounded by Thai people, you're going to get a lot of looks, yeah. you know, in, in, in the best way possible. You know, the, the little kids, especially they love to see this white skinned, you know, fair, fair hair guy that doesn't look like them. And so I had that experience and I had the exact same experience when I came back to America too. It's like, I'm a, I, I have, I'm literally, there is no direction home here. I, I don't, this is not my home right. because I'm being pointed at and stared at in the grocery store. Uh, yeah. How was that adjustment suddenly living in a, in, in Ohio? You think of, you know, Midwestern, I mean, Ohio is about as America as you can, can get. It's the Midwest. It's, you know. Yeah. The heart of it all. Yeah. And, and now you're at home. You're with your family again. You're. How was that for you? There was a honeymoon period of being, being around my family and I hadn't been around in 13 years. I mean, except sporadically. So for me to see my nieces and nephews on a daily basis was great. Um, and I enjoyed it. And then like most honeymoon periods, it lasted for a little while. And then I started to get into, I started to get into the day in day out, sort of like quarantined life, which a lot of people experienced. Mm -hmm. And I, I was no different. The only thing I think that might've made me have a di slightly different experience was my primer from what I was coming from for the yeah. last 13 years. So after the honeymoon phase, it's fair to say I was getting a little bit antsy uh, in a different way than just someone who had been going to an office and then now was forced to work from home. How did the idea to start to go on a road trip, how did this develop? Sure. So <clears throat> initially it started, I have, um, I come from a big family. I have three brothers and two sisters and they're all, they all have their own families. So my clan is pretty, pretty big. And two of my brothers had been considering buying motorcycles and they wanted to buy these bikes. They're called dual sport motorcycles. Essentially what it is, is like a street legal 
yeah. street legal dirt bike. It's a, it's like, it looks like a dirt bike that you and I would, would call a dirt bike, but you're allowed to drive it on the road. And it's, it's for, um, riding on trails, riding in the woods, you know, doing things like, like a dirt bike. And so two of my brothers had been considering getting those because we travel up to Canada in the summers and there's a lot of places to ride there. And they thought it would be a fun thing to have. When I moved back, I got, I was just folded right into that conversation because of my proximity to them. And also the other thing that was going on was that I knew I needed something because I was stuck in lockdown. I couldn't do the things that I would normally do. Like I, I, I love jujitsu. I practice jujitsu and I've been doing it for a number of years. I would say on the list of things that you shouldn't do during COVID, like rolling around on the ground with a stranger is probably, probably one of them. I mean, short of like just walking up and kissing strangers, like doing jujitsu with them is like a big no, no. Yeah. So that was a problem for me because like that for the better part of, you know, I hadn't been doing jujitsu for 12 years, but for the better part of 12 years, I've been doing Muay Thai. I've been doing boxing. I've been doing jujitsu. I couldn't do any of those things. And that was a big part of my life. And I, I knew I'm like, this is dangerous because I don't, this is a big void that I need to fill. And when my brothers were talking about buying these motorcycles, I thought, okay, that's an outdoor activity. It's safe. It's something that I can do. So I also decided to buy one of these dual sport motorcycles and we bought them in May and we spent the summer riding them, going on trips, day trips, weekend trips, week long trips, just in the U S like, you know, we would go take our bikes down to West Virginia and spend the weekend riding on trails and camping or staying at a cabin or, or whatever, or taking day trips to overnight trip to Southern Ohio and riding. And so we got into the early fall and the thing about a motorcycle is that it's not a four season activity. You can't really do it in the yeah. winter. And the motorcycle, the dual sport bike was filling a void. And I was like, acutely aware of that. I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. And I'm going to be back right back to where I started, mm. except it's going to be colder. And I'm, I'm going to really, now I'm going to really have a hard time figuring out something to keep myself sane. Your sanity kind of rests on this bike in a way. Maybe, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's my, um, it's my life raft. Yeah. Yeah. And so my brothers and I went on a week long motorcycle trip in the early fall. And we went from Ohio to West Virginia, down to Virginia, back up to Maryland. And this is like, 70% uh, trail riding. We're not mm -hmm. riding on paved roads. We're riding in the woods and we're following up. We're following a predetermined map, but it's not like a road. It's not a road trip. It's, it's a trail trip. And we did a week long trip and it was great. We had a great time. And on that trip, I remember sitting in a hotel room with one of my brothers. We had drank way too much wine. <laughs> and I, I just said to him, what if I went on a trip by myself? And Thankfully, he was very supportive and they, they all, bo both of my brothers were very supportive of this idea of me going out on a trip by myself. And so we came back from the trip and then honestly, just like when I left in COVID, I would say maybe 10 days later, mm -hmm. I had decided that I was going to embark on a solo adventure through America yeah. on my motorcycle. So it wasn't something that I had been planning for four months or a year and doing research or trying to get a plan together. It was, it was pretty quick. How did you decide where you were going to go first? I wanted to hedge my bet a bit because I wasn't sure. And I didn't really share this with anyone, but I was like, I, I, I'm the type of person I, I, I want to be careful about how much I extend myself 
in terms of what I'm going to do, because I don't like the idea of like, I'm going to do this and then I don't do it. Right. And so, and also, you know, a very supportive family, mom and dad, brothers and sisters, all very supportive of me, but also like, want to be careful about what, I mean, they already had the primer. I mean, I've been living abroad for 13 years, but that being said, now I'm back. So there could have been a sense of like them holding on, you know? Yeah. And so for me to be like, Hey, I'm taking off on my motorcycle. See you later. They might be like, Whoa, wait, wait. So I kind of hedged my bet. And I said, what if I just do a trip down to new Orleans? That was the plan. What if I just go to new Orleans, then I'll come back. And, and actually the way that I framed it to my to people around me was I'm going to try to go to new Orleans. Because actually, one of the things I was worried about was that I had done trips, but I'd always done trips with other people. I was concerned, like, what if I get out on the road and after like four days, I'm like, this sucks. I don't like this. I'm not enjoying this. Then I'm going to have to turn around and come home. So I didn't want to do like the big, okay, goodbye, everyone. Good luck. You know, take care. Send us a postcard. And then four days later, I'm back. Right. You know, I didn't want that to happen. The initial plan was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive to New Orleans and... Or I'm, at least I'm going to try. And then after I'm done, I'll probably come back. Now, that obviously, that's not what happened. And pretty quickly into my trip, I realized like two or three days in, I love this. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy right now. Oh, my God, this isn't going to end. Um, and so, yeah, that was the initial. The initial plan was to go to New Orleans. But pretty quickly into the trip, I realized it wasn't going to it wasn't going to end there. So. There's, there's, there's different kinds of, obviously there's different kinds of motorcycles. You've got like Harleys and road bikes, but then what I'm riding is called a dual sport. And it's more like, almost like a dirt bike. There's another bike that's called an adventure bike. And you see those a lot on the highway. You know, there's like BMW, a thousand horsepower bikes or a thousand CC bikes. Um, they're bigger. They're, 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 they're almost like little mini cars, you know? I'm not riding one of those. So when I started the trip, I knew already that I didn't want to take the highway. It was almost like I wanted to do the blue lines. I wanted to take back roads and travel and see different places on my way to New Orleans. There wasn't The goal was not just to get there as fast as possible. I wanted to have the experience of going there. So that definitely influenced my route and the way, and the, and the way that, I was, that, I, that I was driving there. So where was the next the route destination? Was, after that, after I finished in New Orleans, I made my way over to Florida and decided to go down to Key West and go to the southernmost point of the United States. And then from there, every point after that was just picking a new destination, future destination to go to. And I'd stop, stop places along the way. And I haven't stopped. I enjoyed day one as much as I had enjoyed day 47. Right. Day 62, day 23. They're all, they're all separate days that have their own little it's just, it's they're all chapters and they all have a unique there's all part of a bigger experience how did you outfit yourself and how much thinking went into that in the beginning of the trip so it's all a learning curve um and that's part of the fun for me like i said this wasn't something i mean i did a little bit of research but i i knew that i was going to make mistakes and do things the wrong way and i wanted that to happen and one of the mistakes i made right off the bat was i packed way too much stuff i actually packed like i was going on a week-long trip whereas I had everything that I would need. And that just adds space and weight to the experience, which you don't want. The goal is to get things as streamlined and small as possible. So actually, since I started 10 weeks ago, I've been shedding, what can I take out of my bag? Do I need that sweatshirt? 
Do I need this? Do I need that? Can I get rid of this? Can I get rid of that? And I've tried to strip down as much as I can. To answer your question, I think I have about four days worth of clothes. So right. I have to do laundry every four days. Um, I travel with camping gear. So I have a tent, a sleeping pad, and a sleeping bag. I have the minimum amount of tools that I would need to fix the bike. And then the smallest amount of personal effects I can bring. A computer, charging cables, clothes, and that's pretty much it. And a phone. And a phone. So how do you do your laundry? Um, typically, I, I switch between sometimes I camp. Sometimes I stay in Airbnbs. Occasionally I stay in a hotel, but that's not very economical. And you just find spots to do laundry. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you have a destination in mind, but a big part of your day is finding a spot that you can do some laundry. Wow. Do you, how often, if, forgive me for asking this, but... How often do you bathe and where do you, where do you bathe? And did you, were you present? Like, did you think about this before you hit the road? Like, I definitely oh, didn't. I definitely didn't think about it before I left. Um, I try to bathe every day. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, um, oftentimes like you're, 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 you're conscious of it in that you're picking spots like, oh, there's a campsite that has a shower. I'm going to stay there. And so I can, you know, yeah, you need to take showers you need to brush your teeth and shave. And, you know, that's important. And, and actually maintaining a, a good level of hygiene is important when you're on the road for, for two or three months, because you don't want to have, you know, get an, you know, you didn't get a, get a, 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 a blemish, skin blemish that turns into an infection. Now I have a problem. I have to fix this problem. Um, and so it's important to do little things like that, like make sure you're washing behind your ears and, and taking care and eating well, because if you don't want to, you know, get sick because you're not, you're not eating a healthy diet. Um, I don't do a lot of cooking. A lot of guys cook, you know, when they're camping, what I tend to do is again, I can't eat at a restaurant because it's not healthy. So what I tip, typically do is stop at a grocery store and try to get some semi healthy food from a grocery store and, you know, eat a banana in the morning and try to keep a, a good diet. Have you, uh, um, lost weight or, or gained weight or well that so one of the um problems that i've faced on this trip one of the challenging things is a lack of exercise because i'm on the road every day mm. so it's, it's hard because i can't go to the gym and so actually my new year's resolution to myself was i need to start doing dedicating part of my morning or evening to getting some physical activity done whether it's in my camp going for a, a difficult hike doing squats doing push-ups to try to get to keep my physicality back up. How many hours typically are you on the road every day? Sure. Like, is that, is it, do you kind of try to keep that the same amount of hours on the road every, like, are you kind of setting a time limit? One of the things that's different about my experience than other people that might've done something similar because of my situation, um, I'm not taking a vacation for a week and going on a ride, which a lot of guys that ride motorcycles do. I'm more open-ended. So I don't have to get to a certain destination by a certain time, which would force you to, to drive a certain way or drive a certain distance. Um, I have a little bit more freedom. When I first started the trip, I was very results oriented, particularly like that first week or two. I was like, okay, I just gotta like get to this spot, then get to this spot, then get to this spot. And then after I decided or figured out that like I was going to continue this adventure for, for as, as long as I could, it started to become much more about the process. Like I'm going to detour and just go this way. And then I might double back and go a different direction. I wasn't on a destination orientation. Um, in terms of how long I drive each day, 
I don't take the highways. I typically go back routes, back roads. And so I might only average about 45 miles per hour. So I could, a good day for me would be about 300 miles, which is going to take me like six or seven hours. How physically demanding is that to be riding on a motorcycle for six straight hours? One of the first things I did to my motorcycle to modify it was put on a new seat. So a motorcycle is like anything else. It's like there's a lot of things that you can change and add and take away to modify it, make it better. Um, after I bought the bike, I changed the seat and I spent a, not a lot of money, but I spent I spent money to put on a much more comfortable seat because your butt is the one thing that's going to get you know it's going to get tired after seven hours of riding. In terms of the physicality, y- your body can get trained pretty quickly, just like anything. You get after a couple of days, you're sore, but your body gets trained to riding on the bike. In terms of challenges that I face riding the bike, they're all external. Because I'm on a motorcycle, it's it's hard. You have to sort of do it to appreciate it, but there's no refuge from external conditions like rain or wind or cold weather. I mean, if you wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and it's 35 degrees outside, you have to go get on the bike. You're not getting into a warm car. Or if it's raining, I mean, you could. I, I guess I could say, well, I'm just gonna sit in my tent all day and wait for the rain to stop, but I don't want to do that. I want to go. So the, a lot of the challenges are external, like weather. So what, what do you do if you wake up in the morning and it's raining? Rain is, I've been very lucky with rain. I've only had a couple of days of, of bad rain. And the, the hard part is when you're on the, literally on the road and it starts raining. Yeah. And really it's just, um, it's a case by case basis. If it starts raining too hard, I got to pull over and find cover, mm. basically find a tree or somewhere to, an, an, an old barn on a, on a farm, I'll pull into a barn and just kind of wait it out. Um, I've been very lucky with rain. I have had several days in a row of cold weather because I, the wind chill, I'm not protected from the wind. So if it's, even if it's 50 degrees, but you're riding on a motorcycle at 50 miles an hour, it's going to feel like 40, 40 mm-hmm. degrees and it's cold. And so it's also part of like stealing your mind and a big part of going on a cross country road trip for several months is you have to have a strong mind or at least get your mind in the right frame of reference to deal, to deal with external factors. Is there something you do every day to do that? Do you meditate? Do you, uh, I, I don't meditate like, uh, do TM or, or practice meditation regularly. One of the most unexpected pleasures that I've had from doing this trip is I have the ability to listen to music or listen to a podcast because I have these speakers inside my helmet and it's connected to my cell phone. So I could just drive down the road and listen to your podcast episode while I'm riding. And it makes for a real pleasurable riding. And at the beginning of the trip, I did that. Listen to this podcast or listen to some music. And then pretty quickly, I stopped doing that because it was almost like too distracting. Mm-hmm. Like if I was just going on a regular day trip and I was going to come home for dinner, maybe I'd put some music on. But I knew that in order to experience it the way I wanted to, I had to have like a, an open, clear mind. I didn't want to be distracted. And I had one of the most singular, interesting experiences from driving for hours at a time with no distract, no mental distractions beyond, you know, being careful on the bike. And what I learned is that if given, <laughs> if given hours, five or six hours, no cell phone, no phone calls, no nothing. Your mind can go in these amazing directions and these amazing places. And you can just let your mind think about things for hours at a time. 
And some of the most pleasant and pleasurable days I've had are when my brain is just going and I'm just internally thinking about all these different things and letting, having these amazing mental, it's almost like a form of meditation. I was going to say, it sounds like riding the bike itself is almost a meditative experience. And it's, I understand that most people don't have this experience, but I would, I would equate it to being able to go into a room and almost like meditate for as long as you want without any distractions. You're always amazed at where your mind can go during those, those episodes. And I get to experience that on a daily basis, which is not something I was anticipating. Right. Do you think your training in like jujitsu, for example, like I know martial arts often have, uh, there's a certain, it's all, it seems to be about focus. Like, has that played a role in any of this? Do you think? Or? I definitely think that, um, in, in, in particular, jujitsu is requires a, 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 a long period of dedication. It's not something that you can do very quickly. You have to dedicate a lot of your time to it. So there's a discipline that comes with that. And I think that that discipline has certainly aided me because this trip turned into maybe it's going to be a week to now almost three months later. So there was just a level of discipline. Of course, you could also get that from work or from other hobbies. But for me, the discipline that I've developed from doing some other things has played out here. You're by yourself for hours, almost all the time. Almost um, all the time. It's interesting to me that a lot of people have spent like the COVID lockdown by themselves inside. You are spending it um, alone, but outside. How do you deal with the loneliness? Is it something that it doesn't bother you at all? Or is it something that, that it does bother you, but you've, how, how are you dealing with that? There are moments of loneliness and, you know, particularly if I've had a, a difficult day, like the weather was cold or I made a mistake on the bike or something happened that I wasn't expecting that wasn't good. It can contribute to that feeling of like, I'm alone. I miss people. What am I doing out here? But those instances are few and far between and far outweighed by just a general excitement and happiness about what I'm doing. So every day I wake up excited to get on the bike to see what I'm going to see to see what's going to happen as the process continues so loneliness is never really a problem for me it's there but it's just it's dwarfed by a general excitement about what's going on right you're encountering something new like every moment it, pretty much yeah like <laughs> I mean you could say everybody is but you're really sort of literally act, yeah actively driving it. to something new every moment what has been the most challenging part of this trip for you so far it goes back to the video blog yeah. um i didn't start the video blog right away in fact the first maybe 10 or 12 days of my trip i was just experiencing the adventure of going on this trip and i wasn't filming it and as someone that has a background in media we both do you know that creating something requires a dedication to that creation in other words if you're going to you're going to make a video, you have to make the video. My problem was, was that that's kind of in conflict with what I was doing, which is riding my bike around the country, meeting people, seeing things and having experiences. And so the most challenging part was figuring out a balance between how do I record this, film it, document it in a way that I feel comfortable sharing with it while also having what I thought was this very individual experience of going on this road trip. And so it took me a couple of days and to figure out how to do it. And I had to make some 
concessions on both ends. Like I can't film that the way I should because it's going to be too difficult or I can't go exactly where I want to on my bike because I have to be conscious of the fact that I'm going to have to film it, things like that. That's right. probably the most challenging part. You don't want the, the, the act of creating a video log about what you're doing or a video blog about what you're doing to disrupt just the pure experience of what you're doing and vice versa. You're trying to capture that pure experience, but not maybe. Yeah. Maybe and, and the other way, possible. I also don't want the act of just driving and being on the road trip to negatively impact a thing that I would like to share with people. Right. So it's all about finding that balance. And that's been a challenge and it's, it continues to be a challenge and it's something that I deal with. You shared a little clip of a video of one of your vlogs with me in preparation for this interview today. One of the episodes. Yeah. One of the episodes. And you were in a um, small town, very small town in Texas. Dell City, Texas. Dell City, Texas. Yeah, population like 487 or something. And you were in the Spanish Angel Cafe. Correct. And and I, I was just curious, like, when you walk into the cafe, do you say to them, like, hey, do you guys mind if I film you? Or how does that kind of interaction start? But I, I appreciated that episode because you walk in and we're like, it's really interesting to go just meet people on the road. But how do you set that up? Sure. That- so... I'm glad that I got to share that clip with you. And I think that that clip that I shared is indicative of what I've been, what I've been experiencing on a daily basis, which is people are very friendly and welcoming to someone that they don't know coming into their little world. So in this example, I was, I stopped in this little cafe. I stopped, it was a gas stop. It was an unscheduled stop and I needed gas because I was in West Texas and sometimes gas stations in West Texas can be pretty few and far between. So I knew that I was going to go to this place called Dell city just for gas. And while I was there, I saw this cafe and I went inside and there's like a, the two people, a husband and wife that run the place. And there was one couple eating in there. And I ended up spending like an hour there because I just had the most amazing conversations with them. And I think that the fact that I'm on the road on my motorcycle is a great icebreaker because it's like surprising. It's like, you know, people don't see that every day. So it's an automatic sort of like open window to a conversation. But for me, I actually feel like I'm the one that gets the better end of the deal because I get to meet people that I normally wouldn't get to meet. Like the guy, I forget his name, but really friendly guy started asking me questions, ended up talking to him and he's buying me beer before he leaves. And it's just a really nice gesture. I mean, he's just a stranger. Now, nothing unique happened except we just talked. Yeah. And and then, you know, if I had walked into that place and said, Hey, will you buy me a beer? He'd probably tell me to get lost. But the fact that I just spent a few minutes talking to him about my experience, all of a sudden he's ready to buy me a beer. Um, and that happens to me again and again, people typically are okay with being filmed because I'm doing something. I'm not just someone that's just walking around filming people. I'm a guy on a motorcycle on a trip around the country I tend to film my experiences. You've, you've been living abroad for 13 years. You've been having this incredibly epic adventure. How do you think the country has changed or is changing since you last lived here? One of the things that I've been, that I think is pretty interesting is I think that America has become much more of a me first. There's like a me first prism through everything. And I think that that might be related to social media. And of course, there's tons of material, the people talking about this, but it is kind of evident, I think, in politics and culture and, and the way that people approach things is there is just sort of a me, t- me first attitude that I was, that was, is more amplified than when I lived here 13 years ago. That being said, 
I don't think that I'm surprised, but I'm pleasantly, I, I always enjoy these amazing experiences I have with people I meet along the way. Americans are still very kind, friendly, love to talk, love, you know, uh, walk up to a stranger on a motorcycle to gas station and strike up a conversation. I mean, essentially it happens every time I, every time I, every time I get gas, I meet someone and there are people that want to come up and talk to me. And so I am reminded about how outgoing, friendly, and approachable Americans are. How does your experience of the country now, and again, you're, you're literally driving across it and you're going through small towns, small rural communities. You're probably going through more of those than you are large cities just Definitely. out of a necessity. How does that square with what you're seeing kind of those places being portrayed in the media, let's say? This whole process has actually been about rediscovering America, as you pointed out. I'm kind of interesting that and from a COVID point of view, everyone had to sort of go inside and I was able to find a way to kind of go outside. But I am through this process and, and I didn't I didn't start out trying to do this, but I am kind of rediscovering America after a long absence. And when I returned, I started to get more integrated and involved in like the news and politics just because of my proximity to it. And I would say that what what we're seeing on the news is a, a piece of reality that's put through their filter. In other right. words, sometimes when I watch the news, I'm, I feel anxiety. I feel depressed. I feel worried. But my day in, day out experiences on the road don't reflect that. I don't see that. I don't see political aggression. I don't see um, people behaving inappropriately towards people that they disagree with. I don't, I don't see any of it. So it is kind of interesting when you, when you take things from what you might see on the news or the media, I'm not really seeing that reflected in my day-to-day -day experiences. You talked about how living um, in a foreign country in Asia, you have attempted to the best of your ability to kind of assimilate back in or into the, into the different culture that you're living in. Now you're back in the United States again. Do you feel like you have to kind of like assimilate back into the United States now? Again, when I started this journey, it wasn't, the goal wasn't to try to rediscover my country. I didn't have a plan. It just happened, but it is happening now. And I do think that it reminds me if, I'm going to pull from our mutual history. Yeah. Do you remember in 2003, you and I went to see a documentary film called The Fog of War yes. by Errol Morris. And it's yeah. about uh, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, his interviews yeah. with Robert McNamara. Now, for the, for the listeners, Mike and I, that was a sort of a seminal moment in our friendship, going to see that documentary film together. Well, there's a part of that documentary where Robert McNamara is talking to the director, Errol Morris, and he says, Robert McNamara quotes a poem by T.S. Eliot. And the quote is, we shall not cease exploring. And at the end of our exploring, we will arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And that was 17 years ago. And that quote was always with me. I mean, I didn't reference it on a regular basis, but when we talked about doing this podcast, one of the first things that occurred to me was that quote by T.S. Eliot. And I think that to a certain degree, that's what I'm doing is that 
I have never stopped exploring. And then now that I've returned back to the place where I started, I'm discovering it again for the very first time. And do you think, or how has living abroad for 13 years, how has that changed the way that you look at the United States? I'm, I think that's why I'm on the road right now. I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah. And I've been on the road for nearly three months and I plan to continue, but that's the answer that I'm seeking. I don't, well, I should say that's why, that's what I'm seeking. And I'm not sure there's an answer there. I don't know how I look at it differently. I just know that I feel like I'm looking at it for the first, again, for the first time. What, what is the impression you're getting when you're looking at it right now? The impression that I, or the, the realization that I've come to is that I believe that it's more a reflection of the person doing the exploring, the person that's looking rather than what it is that you're finding. It's like, I'm much more interested in, the wide variety of questions than I am the answer. So can I break for a second and tell you a little sideline story? Yeah. Kind of like a ship. It's bad luck if you don't give your bike a name. Yeah. So I named my bike and I named it Hopper. Okay. After Dennis Hopper, easy rider. Okay. Right. Obviously like easy rider, seminal movie about guys going on a road trip across America. The tagline for Easy Rider is they went in search of America and couldn't find it anywhere. Okay. The tagline for my series is I went in search of America and found it everywhere. Okay. Right. Everywhere I go, I feel like I see, I am seeing what America is for better and for worse. And what I realized is that this journey is more about how I see America because whatever you want to find out there, you're going to find it. If you're looking for political division, if you're looking for turmoil, if you're looking for a country on the brink, you can find it. If you're looking for sort of the tenets of what it means to be an American, freedom, pursuit of happiness, pursuit of opportunity, you're going to find that too. You can find excess. You can find conservatism. You can find everything in between. And I've seen it all. And I think it's not about what I'm hoping to find. It's about I want to continue the journey looking. What do you think Americans, particularly right now, might benefit from learning from Japan? I, I wish everyone could have the opportunity to experience a completely different culture. And moreover, to do it in a relaxed, mentally relaxed environment. Because I think what you, what I learned or what I wish people could learn is that America's like the center of a lot of things, but there's a whole bigger world out there and they're doing things in a different way it's not better it's not worse i've always i always have been and i continue to be so impressed with taking a sense of personal responsibility call it honor call it self-respect that if you challenge yourself to be true to 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 live with a moral or ethical code that you design that that can make not only you a better person, but it can contribute to making society, your little community, your country and the world a better place. I do believe that. And I see the evidence of that from Japan, that that internal sense, inbred sense of honor and respect is a very real thing. And it can have a profound effect on 
the way that their community or society operates. You've done things, you've kind of done at least two things that I can think of that other people, like it's the kind of thing people just like dream about. They're like, oh, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to just go live in a foreign country, you know? Uh, I'd really love to do that. That's my dream, you know, and it's very romantic. And and another one would be like, oh, I want to drive a motorcycle across the country. I'm just going to leave everything behind and get, and go drive across the country. And these are things that people romanticize about. But what would you say to those people before, like, before they do that? If they're going to do that for themselves, what would be the advice that you would give them? I, I think I, there's two things that I would like to say about it. Number one is don't think that you can't do it. Because the truth is, I did both of those things without a plan. Now, I had to manage it. Of course, I still am managing my life abroad, and I'm managing this trip while I'm on it. But don't think for a second that I had a, something special about me that made me capable of doing this in terms of like starting or, you know, getting the jump off. Mm -hmm. That would be the first thing I'd say is that. So it doesn't, and it also doesn't have to be extreme. Like you don't have to move to a foreign country, but you can go visit a foreign country or you can take a unique vacation. Don't do the thing that you normally do challenge yourself. The second thing I would say is, I think that leave your mental baggage, leave that at home. Drop your impressions, your preconceived notions about what it is that you're going to see or where you're going to go, leave that at home and go with as op an open mind as you can, because you're going to be amazed at what you can experience. And conversely, I tried to do that when I came back to America. After being gone for so long, I didn't want to have all these preconceived notions about what I thought America was, particularly when I went on this unplanned road trip. Like I'm trying to let it be, let it come to me. Whatever it is that I see and experience, I want it just to be what it is, not what I think it should be or what I'm expecting it to be. So for people that want to do something, figure out what it is that you can do and do it and try to have as an open mind about it as you can. Is it true that you can never really go back home? I think that people define that word home in different ways. For a lot of people, it's a literal thing. It's a place that you grew up. It's a place that you're, where your family is or it's your house where you live and work and share your life experiences with people that are close to you. I think for really lucky people, home can be a person. Home can be someone, a partner, a husband or a wife or a life partner, and they're your partner in, in your journey. And that's, that's a great thing. I consider myself especially lucky because for me, I define home as an experience. It's a process that to me feels like home. So in essence, I'm always home wherever I am and whatever I'm doing. If it's a part of my process and my experience in life, I feel like I'm home. So that's how I define home. And I think that anyone that wants to, can find their own definition of what home means and then go to it. If you're in that mindset, then I suppose in a way the term no direction home, well, there is no direction home because you always are home. For me, yeah. Uh, when we started this podcast, the first question you asked is why I called my video blog No Direction Home and I said, I don't really have an answer. 
I'm hoping to figure it out <laughs> by the end. And I honestly feel like we were, we're much closer to me figuring that out yeah. than we would when we started. Right. How long do you anticipate being on the road? When I started the road trip, I was careful not to try to give it, try to define it. Cause I was worried about if I fell short or it didn't work out. And also I, I'm now careful about how long am I going to extend it because I don't know what's going to happen. What I can tell you is that being on the road and having this experience feels like I'm home and no one wants to leave home because home is where you're the best version of yourself. So my hope is that I can continue. I can continue to not only have this unique experience, but also to share it through a YouTube channel and video blog and that people will also enjoy the experience and take something away from it. And if they do, then that motivates me to continue to keep going, to try to seek out this direction home. Uh, well, Bob, I really want to thank you for coming, uh, coming on the show today. If you would just briefly tell people, uh, where they might be able to find your blog. Sure. So it's going to be a YouTube channel called no direction home. If they just go onto YouTube and search no direction home, and then there'll be the corresponding social media, and they can follow me and communicate with me there. I'd like to say, I hope that I can come back and share more of my experiences after I've been continuing this journey. Right. Well, let's consider this like uh, part one. Okay, and, here we go. Um, I definitely think that we should check in maybe in six months. Sure. We'll do another one and we'll see where you are and we'll see um, if you've managed to assimilate back into the United States and... Again, thank you very much, Bob, for coming on the show. And everyone, you've been listening to Interview Time. <laughs>